It's good to see everybody here. Let's get right into it today. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and I don't want to keep you here too long. Um, but as we, as we look today at part four, uh, it's overcoming spiritual famine. We've talked about overcoming fear. We've talked about overcoming failure. Today, we're, we're going to talk about overcoming famine. And then next, next Sunday, we'll close the series out with overcoming flesh. And now, probably of all of these, uh, and I told you early in this, in this series that I'm probably going to challenge your theology. I probably haven't challenged it much at this, up to this point. Next Sunday, though, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to mess with you a little bit theologically because uh, we have such a, a strange way of looking at our struggles. And a lot of times we, uh, as I said in the early stages of this, we want an easy out when it comes to our flesh, uh, the, the carnality of our life and the things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. But next Sunday, we're going to kind of dive deep into it. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm just going to kind of give you a, a quick fair warning disclaimer. Some of you won't like me after next Sunday. Uh, you may not like me now. I don't know. I mean, just, you know, but it's just one of those deals. I can guarantee you next Sunday, uh, the, the Holy Spirit's going to get down in some of your stuff and really deal with some things in your life. Uh, but today is a unique topic. Uh, I don't know that I've actually heard anybody teach on this in, in recent memory. Um, we always t- typically look at famine as something that happens when uh, there's no rain and, and crops destroyed and all this kind of stuff. But turn, it, turn it to more of a spiritual side today. What about those of us that go through seasons of spiritual famine and dryness in our spirit? Um, Famine, a spiritual famine, is a state of spiritual hunger arising from a failure to experience the presence and joy of God. That's the definition, okay? So let's look at, quickly, let's look at some causes of spiritual famine. Obviously, sin in our life causes spiritual famine. Isaiah 59 says, our iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that you don't hear. Uh, If you're looking, if you're following along the notes or in you version this morning, I'm not going to read all the passages that are there uh, but you can look at them. I'm just going to hit some of the high points because I want to get down to how do we walk out of this? How do we get out of a season of spiritual famine? First cause, sin. Second cause, unbelief. Uh, in Acts 13, you know, uh, in Acts 28, Paul and Barnabas are dealing with it. And Paul, again, is making a statement about the Holy Spirit speaking truth, but yet people are rejecting that truth. Uh, they're choosing not to believe it. We can find ourselves in spiritual famine because... Uh, we may know what the Bible says, but we may be looking at it and going, well, I know what the Bible says, but I just don't believe it. You know, I don't, I don't like what that says. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to embrace that as if that's going to change the, the matter. Okay. Uh, you know, people say, well, there's no God that doesn't change the fact that he's God, you know, that he exists. Well, the word of God says this, well, I don't necessarily believe that applies to me. Okay. You can argue that at heaven's court one day, see how far you get with it. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact. Un- our unbelief many times causes spiritual famine. Uh, worldliness, worldliness. When we when we look and act and and behave, talk all of that the way everybody else in the world does. Um, Isaiah said again in fifty five. He says, "Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy?" Um, and then First John, uh, do not love the world nor the things it offers for you. Uh, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the father in you. And, you know, Paul talks about that we're in this world, but we're not of it. And the the other side of this is that there's a, there's this thing about us many times that, that has been distorted because we had used the passage, come out from among them and be separate 
to uh, condone separating ourselves from the world in a way that we never have any contact from the world. And, and that's not biblical at all. We are to be in this world. We live here. We're sent to be salt and light. But the difference is we're not to behave the way the world behaves. We have a different set of standards. We have a different way of living. We have a different way that we go about doing life because the Bible teaches us this is what, how you're supposed to live. But if you're choosing to straddle the fence, per se, then there's a problem there when you're, when you're living too close to the world. Remember the, the parable of the ten virgins, uh, five foolish, five wise. They, were, they all started on a level playing field. They all started the same way. They all had oil in their lamps. They had lamps, they had oil, everything else. But the ones that are designated as foolish are the ones that didn't stay prepared. They didn't stay prepared. Remember the story. They get there. They're all, they're all the same. They, they're waiting for the wedding to begin. They're waiting. They have their lamps. They have everything there. But at some point in the journey, something happens, and five of them don't have enough to get through. Excuse me. Um, and so what, what the story goes is this, that while, they're, while they were away getting some more oil for the lamp, the bridegroom came, and the doors were shut, and they couldn't get in to the feast. What happened there? They cut it too close to the edge. They cut it too close to the edge. And I know that that parable can be problematic for people that have grown up with, with a mentality that, that once saved, always saved. Because you, you, it's, a hard, it's hard to argue the fact that they were there, but they didn't get in. They began the same way the others did. All 10 of them were on the same place. They all had lamps. They all had oil. Their light was burning brightly. Something happened in the journey. And when the, when the bridegroom showed up, some of them didn't get in. So what happened there? Is there, is there an element of worldliness that separates us from the joy and the presence of God in our life? Absolutely there is. False beliefs. Isaiah 8, you can say, well, you're using a lot of Old Testament stuff today. I know because it's in the Bible. And the Bible says that the New Testament says the Old Testament is there as examples for us. And so we've got to look at it. Isaiah 8, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult, verse 20, consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. And then it talks about being distressed and hungry, roaming through the land. Why? Because they're in spiritual famine. Because they're looking to other venues and other avenues of instruction for their life. You say, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go to a medium or, a, or, or something like that. But yet you may look at, at the things that are easily at our disposal. I know there are people, Ouija boards. Okay, they, they start to get, they want instruction. And it looks like, because it's in the game section in most uh, stores. The problem is it's not a game. You know, tarot cards. You know, the stars, the horoscope, all this kind of stuff. I need guidance for that. I'm going to look at the stars. Well, guess you need to be looking to the one who put the stars up there. But when we start searching other things, it literally separates us from God's presence. And God has, we don't, God doesn't withdraw from us. We withdraw from him because we're looking to other venues, false beliefs. Romans 1 talks about knowing God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And because of this, their foolish hearts were darkened. And they had foolish ideas of what God was like. The next, the next cause of spiritual famine is self-satisfaction. Revelation 3 is the one that, that jumps out. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. But do you not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? When we become self-sufficient, 
I don't need anybody. I don't want anybody. I'm, I'm a self-made person. I've got all this money. I've got all this wealth. I've got all these things. I don't need anything or anybody. We're separating ourselves from the Spirit of God and the presence of God. And spiritual famine is the result of that. It's possible to be well-fed physically, but in famine spiritually. And then there's testing God. Talked a little bit about this in the opening statement this morning, that where we, where we, we look at it and we go, well, I, I know the Bible says that, but. The problem with, it's not I know the Bible says that. The problem is the little word in the middle, but. That's the problem. When we test God, I don't know that you're serious about this, God. Well, he actually wrote it in his book. Okay, that's kind of like Serious. If he writes it down, it's serious. Because you can go back to something that's written down and go, remember when you said this? Remember when you wrote this? You write it down, you have to be held accountable for it. God's holding himself accountable to the words that he's written. But when we test God, thinking that he's not serious about what he says in his book, Psalm 78 says, they willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they crave. You say, well, let's, okay, I want, is he talking about Campbell's soup or spaghetti? He's not talking about either one of those. Okay, food is one thing, but you've got to look at a greater picture of food. It's not always food. It's desire. It's our own personal wants and desires. It's our personal, it's the goals that we set without consulting the Lord. It's the dreams that we have without trying to bring them into alignment with God's word. It's the religious practices that we have without bringing them into alignment with God's word and thinking, well, this is what my grandmother did and my great-grandmother and my mom or my dad and my great-granddaddy and all my tradition is here. But the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter about your tradition if it doesn't line up with the book. We can be living in a traditional mindset of religiosity and religion and Christianity, but if it doesn't line up with scripture, we will find ourselves in a place of spiritual famine. The problem with tradition is, especially in our Pentecostal charismatic tradition, is that we bounce from one mountaintop experience to the next because we've never learned how to live in the valleys. Give me the high points. Give me the buzz. Give me the feeling. And what we've, what we've produced over the last 80 or 100 years in this country, I'm not speaking for anybody else, but I am speaking for, the, for America. I'm telling you straight up what we've produced in the Pentecostal charismatic movement for the last 60 to 100 years is we've got a bunch of spiritual junkies on our hands. That they move from one spiritual high to another spiritual high. And we never learn how to live in the valleys of life. And here's the thing. The vast majority of our life is lived in the valley. Not on the mountains. Wish it was different. I've been to the Smoky Mountains. I love them. Been to the Rocky Mountains. I love them. If I could live somewhere just right outside of West Yellowstone in Montana, I would. Beautiful up there. Of course, I did read this week that some guy was hiking through Yellowstone and got eight. (laughs) There are drawbacks. The bears will eat you. Here we have sharks. I guess it's a trade. Okay, hang on. My sermon just literally disappeared. (laughs) Okay, Satan, you're not going to get this. Hang on a minute. Back up, regroup. That has never happened. 
All right, there it is. Do what? Yeah, my grandson's not. I could call him up and he'd have it here in just a second. So, All right, so we're talking about testing God, putting God to the test, not honoring his word as truth, but testing God. What about God testing us? God testing us to allow us, or literally removing our ability to know his presence and sense his presence, and thus putting us into a place of spiritual famine. He said, well, God wouldn't do that. He did it to Job. He did it to Job. He literally, he literally removed Job's ability to sense and feel God's presence for a season while the enemy attacked him mercilessly. And so Job was in this season of spiritual famine to a point where here's what, here's what Job said. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. Anybody ever wanted to see that? Anybody experienced that before? But if I go to the east, he's not there. Was God not there? No, God was there, but he couldn't sense him. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he's at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. There are seasons in our life that God removes our ability to feel his presence and sense his presence as a time of testing for us. A season of famine, if you will, where God is testing us, will you trust me in times of dryness? Will you trust me when the experience is not there? Will you trust me when the feeling is not there? Will you trust me when the high is not there? When it feels like the heavens are just brassed over and your prayers barely get to the ceiling, will you still trust me? That's a, spirit, that's a time of spiritual famine. But do you trust? Those are some of the, those are some of the things. There, and there's a, we could go on and on and on this morning about things. There, there are tragedies that happen to us that literally send us into times of spiritual famine when we don't know which way to go, left or right. We don't feel God. We don't know how God could be in anything that's happening around us. And we just struggle in this season of barrenness and desert. Okay? But what are the consequences of spiritual famines? When we go through times of spiritual famine, we have, we have weakness spiritually. We can be weak. Psalm 119, my soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. Psalm 82 says, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the living God. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. We have this spiritual weakness that comes into our, time, our lives at times. There's a time of, that we have loss of hope and loss of joy. In Joel 1, he said, has not the food been cut off before our very eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? And then David, after he had committed adultery and murdered Uriah, you know, he, he, he spends these words, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David's dealing with these stu this stuff. He's in this season of spiritual famine that his sin imposed on him. Listen to me. No, we, we don't sin in a vacuum. You can't commit a sin and live in, a, in an ungodly lifestyle and expect God to go, ah, it's okay. I'll still bless you. I'll still, I'll still be near to you. God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. But the sin of our life is a, a wall of separation between us and the Lord. And we have to recognize those things that we're not going to get past that, that wall until we let. That's what David is doing. He's confessing his sin. And he's asking God to restore to him the joy of his salvation. And give him a willing spirit. So spiritual weakness and a loss of hope and a loss of joy. 
are the consequences of spiritual famine. So what, how do we get out of this? There's, there's just some components that I want to give you this morning, uh, and I don't want to hit them, and, and just let them sink into your heart, sink into your life. Hopefully you've got the notes in your version, and you're, and you're following along, and you can go back and read it a little more deeply this afternoon. But the first, the first thing that has to happen, it has to be maintained in our life if we're going to overcome spiritual famine is we have to continue in the word. Unfortunately, when we have these times of dryness and stuff, we, sometimes we just put the Bible on the shelf. Sometimes we go, I'm not even going to read the verse of the day today. I'm just going to set it aside. I've got too much other things going on. I'm just, I'm dry. I don't feel it. I'm not feeling it today, so I'm just not going to do it. The word of God has to be maintained in our life. It has to be maintained. Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin sin against you. Psalm 119, verse 16, I will delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Psalm 119, anybody getting a, there's a pattern here in Psalm 119 maybe? It's kind of there. It's a big, long, big, long chapter, big, long psalm, but it's got all kind of stuff in it. Verse 28, my soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. And then 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. The word of God has to be prominent in our life, even in times of, probably more so in times of famine than otherwise. It boils down to these three things when it comes to the word of God. You got to engage. Those of you that are taking freedom, you've heard these three words. Engage, accept, and apply. Engage, read it, study it. Accept it as absolute truth. It is the word of God. And then the third is apply it. Apply it to your life. Walk it out. Walk it out. The second thing we've got to have in place in our life is worship. Now, most of us in the greater Pentecostal charismatic movement, we think of worship as the singing that we do on Sunday mornings. I was in worship this morning at church. Now, we, we sang out three songs and maybe another piece of another one or something like that. Or maybe we sang one song two or three times, I don't know. About, about 25 minutes, 30 minutes of singing this morning, which is about average. 20 to 30 minutes is what we do on Sunday mornings. If that's all the worship you get during the week, it's no wonder you're in spiritual famine. Amen. Okay, because it's, I mean, it's just not enough. I can't sing like Charlie and the, and the team can. No, I can't. None of us can. Good grief. If you could, you'd be up here. Right? But it's not about that. It's not about that. And it's not just about the singing. It's about prayer. It's about fasting. It's about the other spiritual. This worship is about a lifestyle that we live that puts God at the for- forefront of everything. It does involve singing, even in times of dry and, 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 and bondage and stuff like this. Acts 16, Paul and Silas, are, they're in jail. They've been beaten with an inch of their life. They're in jail. And what are they doing at midnight? Singing. Singing. And everybody was listening to them and all this kind of stuff. And because of the worship that they were doing in that jail cell, an earthquake took place and their, the prison doors opened. Their chains came off. Everybody, the whole jail was set free. But it's not just at church. Notice where they were. They weren't at the temple. They weren't, in the, they weren't uh, at a house church. They weren't in a synagogue. They were in jail and in worship. Now, if you can do that in jail, why can't you do it in a desert wasteland of spirituality? We engage in worship. And that involves everything. Prayer, fasting, 
Jesus, the longest sermon Jesus ever preached is about five to seven minutes long if you read it straight through. But he said some interesting things in that line. He said, he said when you pray, when you fast, when you give. He didn't do a big teaching on prayer, a big teaching on fasting, or a big teaching on giving. He just simply said, when you do these things. Why? Because they're a natural outflow of someone who lives for Jesus. It's a natural thing. So we've got to have worship in our life. And it can't just be on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or some other night of the week. It's got to be every day, all the time. Because you can't turn it on and off. The next thing is the walk. How do we walk this out? Hebrews 12, 1 says, therefore, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So there's two pieces to it. The, hinder, the things that hinder us and the sin that we battle with on a day-to-day basis. We've got to get rid of those things and throw those things off. The New King James Version says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin. Every weight and the sin. So there's two parts to this. What are the things that are hindering us from moving back into a place of spiritual uh, 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 harvest? How do we move out of the famine? We bring our walk in line with this. We bring our worship in line. We bring the word of God. We do all of these things. And because we're walking this, but we get rid of what? The stuff that hinders us. The weight that we're carrying around. The picture that you see, and when you, when you research this culturally, you find out that everybody in the biblical days, they wore these tunics, these robes, whatever. That was their outer garment, and they would walk. Most of them were barefooted. They had little leather sandals or something like that, and they're walking on dirt roads everywhere they go. And as they walk, dust comes up, and it gets in their robes, and their robes actually begin to stretch. They're sweaty and nasty, and their robes begin to sweat because of all the dust, and they begin to get, get longer and longer and longer and longer. And what they're referring to and why they wash their feet was when you go into someone's house, well, you're nasty. Wash your feet before you come into the house. It's the same thing that we do now when we tell people, take off your shoes at the door. We don't want you to get stuff on the hardwood floors. They didn't want to get their dust on other people's dust. Okay, some of you got that one. Good, 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 good. But the deal was, I said, you got to get the weight, because actually, the heavier your robe gets, the harder it is to walk in that thing. Lay aside the weight and the sin. Every weight and the sin. Everything that hinders. So let me ask you this morning, how are you living? Does your walk match your talk? I'm a Christian. Okay. Do people know that by talking to you and by being around you and watching you? If not, maybe you're dealing with some compromise. And I'm not talking about sitting, on, sitting at your desk every day reading out loud from a King James Schofield reference Bible. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about can people tell just by watching you that there is something different about you? When you're at the water fountain in the break room or you're standing around the break room and, and, and dirty, filthy jokes and racist comments and sexist comments are being made, are you laughing along with them or do you step out? Or do you step in and go, hey, we shouldn't be talking like that? Well, look, they might call me a goody two-shoes. I can guarantee you they will call you a goody two-shoes and other things. If you can't handle name calling, you might just want to be living it in front of people instead of engaging in it. But how, do, how does your walk, how does it look to people that are watching? Are you living biblically or are you living contra-biblically? 
But what is counter-biblically? Counter-biblically. The opposite. Do you live biblically or do you not live biblically? That's the question. One other thing, too, when it comes to our walk. What about unforgiveness? Uh, and I've had, literally, I've had people look at me and go, you know what, I just can't forgive that person. They've done so many nasty things, horrible things, I cannot forgive them. That's a problem. Now, some of the problem is because we have this distorted view of what forgiveness is, that if we forgive them, then we've got to accept everything that they've done and, and be okay with it and be back in relationship. No, no, forgiveness means we literally release them from power over us. We release them. But I can tell you this, that unforgiveness is the only door that grace can't shatter. Unforgiveness is the only door that grace cannot shatter. God's grace will not go where unforgiveness is harbored. So, well, God's grace, listen to me. Over and over and over, Jesus, they're in red letters. Jesus said, if you forgive, you will be forgiven. If you do not forgive, then you are not forgiven. I didn't write it. I'm just teaching it. Okay? I don't like that. Well, we kind of talked about that earlier. Your ability to like it or dislike it has nothing to do with its validity as truth. I'm telling you today that there are reasons for us being in spiritual famine and there are ways to break spiritual famine in our life, but we have to walk it out. And unforgiveness is one of those areas that will create spiritual famine in your life quicker than anything you could imagine. We've got to deal with the weight. We've got to deal with the sin. Paul said, I die daily. Every day of my life, I'm putting things under the blood. The last thing is this. The last thing we've got to look into is, is warfare. Actually, it's not the last thing. There's one more. And it's probably the hardest. But warfare is a big deal. It's a big deal. 2 Corinthians 10, we live in the world. We don't wage, wage war as the world does. The weapon we fight with are not the weapons of the world. We demolish arguments. We bring thoughts captive. We punish every act of disobedience. All these things. Ephesians 6 talks about being strong in the Lord, his mighty power, put on the full armor of God. After Easter, we're going to start. I'm going to do, do a series on the armor of God right after Easter. And, and we're going to take each piece of that armor and we're going to look at it because too many times have we gotten these, these ideas about the armor of God, that there's, but there's some specific reasons for the placement of these pieces of armor. And we're going to talk about that after Easter. But it talks about put on the full armor of God. We have to go to war. Are you fighting for your personal spiritual famine to end? Or are you just coming to church expecting it to be broken in your life? Listen, this overcoming is not about the deliverance type thing. It's about what do we do to overcome this season of our life? What do we need to do to overcome it and move past where we are? Well, I just expect God to just open the heavens and just pour down this rain of where all this. Listen to me. If you're not in God's word and if you're not dealing with all the things that we've talked about so far, we talked about the worship, we talked about the word, we talked about the walk, we talked about all of these things this morning. Every one of these things are important in our life and we've got to be able to overcome them. And walk and warfare are a part of it as well. We've got to fight our way through spiritual famine. You can't sit on the sidelines and expect the victory to come to you. It doesn't end because you do nothing. 
It ends because you do something. Overcoming is about doing something. Overcoming something. Confronting it and dealing with it. And then the last one, probably the hardest of all of them, wait. Now you told us you told us that we had to do something. Now you're talking about wait. I'm talking about staying busy while you wait. That's what I'm talking about. Waiting means doesn't mean I'm doing nothing. It's not, sitting, it's not like sitting out on the, on the corner waiting for the, for the transit to come by. But if you've ever paid attention to people that do that, what are they doing? They're on the phone. Saw a guy, saw a guy one time in, 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 a, in a city I was in. He's sitting there with his laptop out, sitting on the bench for the master. What's he doing? Waiting on the bus. But he's working. He's doing something. Waiting doesn't mean nothing. It means doing something, continue to move. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. When is this thing going to end? How long do we have to wait? When will it be over? In due season. In due season. Well, when is is due season? Well, it's when the season is due. (laughs) Well, when is that? Different for everybody. Different for everybody. But it'll happen when the season, if you're doing all these things, if you have all these components in place, there will come a time when God has ordained that that famine will end in your life and the reign of the Holy Spirit will be back there and your joy and your hope will return. But there's a season that we have to wait for. We talked about the armor of God and the warfare. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you can stand your ground. And after you have done everything, stand. Stand firm then, what? With the belt of truth, with the breastplate of righteousness, with your feet filled with the redness that comes from the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of faith, when you can extinguish the flaming arrows, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit. On all. What is he doing? He's standing, he's waiting, but he's doing something. Putting all these pieces in place. The psalmist said, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. What is that? In, in the process of waiting. The desperation continues to build, but the desperation doesn't push us away from God. It brings us closer to him. Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Word, worship, walk, warfare, and waiting are the key components to moving through a season of famine, spiritual famine. My question is, why not start today? Let's stand all over the room. You may be here this morning going, I can't wait. I, I want to get to the altar. I want to get to the altar. I want to get to the altar. Our prayer team will be here after service is over, but I'm not calling anybody to the altar this morning. Why, why not? I mean, we... Charlie and the team, they could come up and they could sing us some good, they could sing rattle this morning. And we could do rattle and this thing went in. You know what would happen to a lot of people that are in spiritual famine this morning if we got up here and did a bunch of those, those type songs? They would have some type of emotional release. But because the components are not in their life, they're still in famine when they leave. What I want for you and what I believe the Holy Spirit wants for you this morning, those of you that are on TV, on, on, in your living room, on the internet watching, those of you that are going to listen to this week, those of you that are in person this morning, what I really think God and the Holy Spirit wants for us is to have an authentic encounter with him as your spiritual famine ends. And that can't happen in this building.
this morning. Look, we know how to do it. We can sing the right songs to get the certain type of response from you. There's two or three songs that we could do and you guys would just come unglued in this house. And there's nothing wrong with that. But for those that are in spiritual famine in this house this morning, if you, if you engaged in that, by the time you got to your car in the parking lot, the enemy's already whispering in your mind. That's just, that's just emotionalism. But if you're by yourself somewhere or in a smaller group of individuals and the Holy Spirit begins to fall and the Holy Spirit begins to reign in your life and the, and the desert parchedness begins to be taken away by the, the beauty, the beauty of, the, of the water of the Holy Spirit and the washing of the water of the Word, you can't rationalize it away. You can't argue it away. It's a unique experience that's authentic to you. And you can go, when the Holy Spirit broke this famine in my life, after I did all these things and I stayed and I waited and I waited and I continued to do these things and I continued to wait and I continued to pray, I continued to seek God, I continued to worship, I continued to fast, I continued to do all of these things. And then there was a day that he made it rain for me. He made it rain. And my famine ended. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for you. If I gave an altar call, some of you would come. And some of you might have an encounter with God. But I want you to have an experience with him that'll last. That you can put in your little book and go, you know what, I remember when this happened. And you can look at someone and go, I know where you've been. I've been there. I can tell you how to get out of this. And it'll happen for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, today, all across this room, in living rooms all over, the, over this place, God, there are people that are in spiritual famine. Speak deeply to us, God. Speak deeply to us, Father. This, this overcoming, this, this, this process, this work that we have to do, may we put in the work, God. May we put in the work so that you can reward us with rain in due season. May we put in the work, Father, so that the reward of joy and peace and spiritual strength would return to our life, God. You know where we are. You know each and every person in this house. You know exactly where they are. You know those that are in famine and those that are not. You know us better than we know ourselves, God. So I pray specifically now for your Holy Spirit to just begin to touch people all over this house, all over the area, God, wherever they are, listening on the internet this morning and throughout this next week or two. Speak deeply to us today, God. May we stay in your word. May we enhance our worship. May our walk be what it is supposed to be. May we do the warfare that's necessary and then may we wait on you and your timing and season. In Jesus' name, we all said amen. Let's say the Lord's Prayer, and then Tommy's going to come, and he'll kind of close us out. We've got the after party. I know he'll talk about that. But let's say the Lord's Prayer together this morning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. God bless you, Jen. We love you.